Love. This video is a message from a little boy named Salman. He disappeared five years ago in Syria during the war to defeat ISIS. He still hasn't been found. My name is Poonam Taneja. I'm traveling to Syria to find out what happened to Salman and the thousands of children like him, lost in one of the most dangerous places on earth. From BBC Sounds and CBC Podcasts, Bloodlines. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and this is The Current Podcast. She has been called Silicon Valley's most feared and well-liked journalist. Kara Swisher made her name covering the tech industry during the 1990s boom and the rise of the commercial internet. And now she has written a memoir of her three-decade career in journalism. The book is called Burn Book, a tech love story. Kara Swisher is in our Washington, D.C. studio. Kara, good morning. Good morning. Would you rather be feared or liked? I don't, I don't get that. That was a New York Magazine profile of me. And, you know, they go for catchy headlines. I don't even know what it means, honestly. I don't think I'm that particularly well-liked or that particularly scary. But uh, I guess, I guess, like, well, I don't know. Depends <laughs> on by whom. By whom. By whom. That's how I would define it. You start this book with uh, an epigraph from The Great Gatsby um, mm -hmm. and this observation that Nick makes that Jay Gatsby and Daisy are above all, above everything else. Not Jay, Daisy and Tom. Barbie, Daisy husband. and Tom. That's right. Yeah. That they're yeah. careless above everything else. Yes, indeed. Yeah. 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 Try to get your rich people straight. I'm very good at that. Um, Who did you uh, have in mind when you, when you decided you wanted to open oh. the book with that line? You know, all of them in, a, in pieces, you know, this idea, this carelessness, probably Mark Zuckerberg. I used it in a speech once, and I was referencing Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg. But I was referring to the whole thing as this sort of lack of accountability and lack of interest in consequence mm -hmm. and lack of payment of their costs. They just, they, they don't like to take responsibility in a way that that adults do, that I, that everybody else has to when things happen. One thing that comes to mind, you know, Mark, and I, let me just be clear, I think he's a, I don't, he's not an Elon Musk character, right? He hasn't, he hasn't, he certainly has a stable life and a lovely family and everything else. But when he was in Congress this time, and he's mm -hmm. been there a number of times, and he turned to the families who had those pictures up, which was very Ripping These are the families whose, whose children have died. And they attribute it to social media, yeah. the, the uses of so either bullying or all kinds of things. And he turned to them, and I could see in his eyes, I know him a little bit, and I could see him seeing it, right, which I appreciated. But instead of saying, I'm so sorry for what I've done to cause your pain, which would be an adult thing to do, he said, I'm so sorry for what's been done to you. It was very passive, mm. like, and I, I found that really interesting that he couldn't take responsibility still when he could see it. He could see the pain, and I understand liability. I understand this, but these people can't be sued. Really, there's no legislation guardrails around them. It's very hard to get them to pay for anything, and so I didn't. I don't know the risk to admitting mm. you might have made some design flaws that led to problems. I want to come back to consequences um, sure. in a minute in those individuals. Let me talk about you. you. How did this start out for you? Why did you want to cover what was happening in Silicon Valley? Well, I actually started out covering in Washington, D.C., where I am living now. Um, I, I was covering retail for the Washington Post, and 
I was writing about this very wealthy family that was warring. It was sort of like King Lear's story. And I wanted something fresh. And I happened to be the young person in the news, in the business section, which was in my 30s. And this online services thing had started. And there was a company called America Online. And this was the first really popular commercial one. There were some others, but they were really catching on. And so uh, the editor at the time, who was David Ignatius um, of the business section, said, you're the young person. Why don't you go out there and see what's cooking? Like, you know, essentially. And I had a, I was going out with someone who was living in this, the former Soviet Union at the time. And we had communicated on some of these new fangled things. And it wasn't the, it wasn't what it is now. It was these weird ways to communicate. And I just got interested in it. And once I went out there, I met Steve Case, who was the, who was not the founder, but he was the, he was the CEO um, of AOL. Of AOL. It was called America Online. They didn't call it AOL until they did the brand, the big branding thing later. But until I, I met him, I didn't. The penny didn't drop that this was a communication system for the whole world. Do you remember? You know? I mean, I, I'm of the age where I had an email address that was as long as my arm initially. Yeah. Do you remember right. your first experience on on what was called I, the World Wide Web? I did. You know, I had tried out the browsers and and stuff like that, and all the FTP. I didn't even remember what it was called. But I was at Duke University, and I was on a fellowship when I was at the Washington Post, and I had downloaded a book, and my mind was blown. It was a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon book, and it was then it was on my computer, and I was like, what? This You can digitize everything. What? Like, I kept saying, what? Like, look at this. And the guy who I, this geek guy was like, so what? And I was like, so what? You don't need a book if you can download a book. You don't need a newspaper if you can download a newspaper. Can you think of the implications? And he just couldn't. And I, that just was the penny. I was like, everything, and I say this in the book, everything that can be digitized will be digitized. It just popped into my head. And I, I don't know, maybe I had watched too much Star Trek or something, but it was like, it was a moment. I was how, like, oh, 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 oh. How early on did you start to think of, of the potential harms of that technology? Uh, right. Not too long. I was sort of interested in gadgets. So I was kind of entranced by it initially. But I think it was, it, it took a while for me to understand the power that these people were going to have, the unlimited power to control things. And for the first part, it was quite delightful. It was really interesting. I did recognize the decimation of the media business right away. Like I had, I had discussions with Don Graham, who ran the Post. And when I saw Craigslist, I was like, uh-oh. You know, a lot of the advertising started to be being done there. And I just was like, oh, look, all the economic underpinnings of this business are under siege. The subscription, because you could get news free. The classifieds, because Craigslist was free. Mm. You could start to see how they could control everything, every aspect of the distribution system. You had the, the great fortune, I mean, you say they, of knowing a lot of they, yeah. a lot of, knowing a lot of the people who were instrumental in creating yes. the things that we take for granted now. Let me just ask you about some of the big players, kind of like a lightning round of your sure. impressions. You mentioned Mark Zuckerberg already. What about Steve Jobs? You say that Steve Jobs was the most consequential figure in the modern I, tech age. I think age. that. I think because of the iPhone, I really do, and the and the and the commercial, the consumerization, the the beautiful use cases of it. Computers were very hard to use, right? And he made it easy. He understood science and design, and understood products, right? And he he transitioned that computer mm. to phone era to internet really well. And that iPhone, when it came out, again, it was another moment where I was like, oh, the apps, because I had had the BlackBerry you know, the one that just had text. Mm -hmm. And when you saw the apps, it, it was so elegant. It was like, click, 
I get it. You know what I mean? It was so easy. What about Elon Musk? Well, he's a complicated figure. Initially, he was sort of one of those guys who had a company. He had, uh, he had a, essentially a Yellow Pages company, an online Yellow Pages company. And then he made some money, and like a lot of people. But instead of going in the direction other people went, which was to become sort of a weekend VC or start a, you know, a dry cleaning delivery service, which to me was really stupid, um, he started moving into cars and like Hyperloop and um, and space. And that was different and, and really ambitious. And he didn't invent Tesla. Other people did. And, and SpaceX was something, you know, he was sort of like Jobsian in that way. He could see where it was going. You were a fan of his people. early on, right? Yes, I was. I wouldn't say fan. I was not like his man fans. But do, are... do you feel like you got him wrong in some ways that you, you no, based I, on who he is now? N- no, I don't. I think people change. I don't, you know, I get that people see that. And I, I really was inspired by what he was doing. I, he was very Jobsian and he really had some vision of where things were going. Cars, there was no way we would be where we are in the EV EVs and electric cars without Elon Musk. There's just hands down. And he, he, he gets all credit. Same thing with space innovation. And so there was a lot to really admire, a lot of it. I, I always joke, I like space Karen and I like car Karen, but I do not like uh, social media Karen. What happened to him? Uh, you know, he always had those elements, the boob jokes, the penis jokes, whatever, you know, the memes. And it was always there, and you were always like, wow, you're a little old for those jokes, right? You know, but it wasn't like, it wasn't unusual because a lot of tech people are like that. They love dumb jokes or dumb memes. Something happened in the wealth creation. You know, everyone gets affected differently by wealth. Um, some people can handle it. Other people cannot. And so he had elements of that in him, that contrarianism. Something happened during COVID. If you notice, there was a lot of happened in Canada and happened everywhere. There was some sort of radicalization you know, he got mad that he couldn't run his factories, couldn't do what he wanted. We had an interview where I challenged him on his COVID rants, and he said, I, he, I read everything. I was like, well, you're not a medical doctor, and you have no idea what's happening. And he threatened to leave the interview. He had never done that. That was odd. And then, you know, you hear, you heard rumors of his use of ketamine. They all were using it. Like, let me tell you, this is not an uncommon thing in tech. You couldn't go anywhere without people talking about it. And so I think the Wall Street Journal did a great job of something everybody thought was happening. Because they right? say the people around him are enabling him. In yes, some ways. yes. Well, what was interesting is they linked it to the board, which everyone made money. Like this guy was, it remi- he started to really remind me of Howard Hughes. Like if you had to make a comparison, like everybody was making dough off of this guy. And so he could do whatever he wanted and already, it, and it ran smack dab into a, a God complex that he always had, right? And, you know, he started to say things like if, if Tesla doesn't work, humanity is doomed. And you're like, okay. Like, you know, it was, you don't, what do you say to that? Like, that's a little dramatic, honey, you know, that kind of thing. And there was nobody who didn't hear about his partying, right? The board let it happen because they all made not just a little money on the board, hundreds of millions of dollars. They also kind of liked it, this idea of, you know, fighting the man. That, that, that started to really infect the rich people of Silicon Valley quite a bit, a little too much, not just Elon, but everybody, Mm. you know, we're fighting the man. And I'm like, you are the man. You know, when you 
it's amazing, incredibly rich and powerful people tell you they're fighting the man, and you're, you kind of look around, and you're like, I believe you. Why do you must. think they talk to you? I mean, you've had access, mm. you, I mean, you talk in the book about that interview with Mark Zuckerberg, where it looked like he was going to you know, sweat through sweat. his hoodie. Yes, um, you've had he did these interviews with you know, <laughs> Steve like Jobs it. and Bill Gates together on the same yeah. stage, Elon mm-hmm. Musk, etc. Why do you think they talk to you? Well, you know, in the case of, of Gates and Jobs, they're adults, like, like Tim Cook, like, they're adults. They know that I'm going to have some tough questions, and they don't mind it because they're secure people, right, um, to different extents. And they liked Jobs particularly liked the back and forth because no one ever challenged him really easily and got away with it kind of thing. And he liked a good debate, and he was quite prescient and interesting, and you could really draw out some really interesting things. So there's a group of people I put in the adult category that are like, oh, I'll talk to her. I, I, and also I happen to talk to all of them, and therefore – like, Mark doesn't talk to Elon, but I talk to both of them. And so they're interested in each other, right? So I had a much more landscape view of the situation. But I think they like to see if they can best me, I guess. Well, I how, do you, how do you avoid being played in this? Because the, the relationship mm-hmm. between – I mean, they have a motive in talking mm-hmm. to you. Sure, you want something sure from them. So how do you avoid being played by powerful people? <sighs> sometimes I get played. Like, I don't I, – sometimes I – you know, the talking points they all have. I think really smart people don't like talking points, right? They want to tell you. You know, there's a movie, A Few Good Men. It mm-hmm. was a play and then a movie. You know, remember, he wants to tell you. And so I feel like I'm that Tom Cruise character. I'm to get them to say they wanted the code red. And they kind of want to. And the challenge is in, I come at them very straightforward in a lot of ways. I think a lot of reporters, when they do interviews, tough interviews with very powerful people, they're like, some people say that this may be, you know, and they're very nervous about their next interview. Mm -hmm. One, I don't care if I ever talk to them again. I really don't. And I don't feel like I'm snarky either. I don't, I don't try to get them. I just am, I come straight on like a train, like, okay, I think what you're doing is incredibly irresponsible and you need some guardrails. Talk to me about that. And do you right? think that like, that's missing from, I mean, one of the things is there's a lot yeah. of money that sloshes around this industry and you wonder there whether is. that impacts the quality I'm of journalism. I'm not so sure. I think journalists are, can be very reticent, you know, and they, but, and they think snarky is the, is the, you know, if I just get him, I dunk him. That's it. You don't. You want to actually get into a great conversation. You know, I'll do it with anyone. I had a back and forth with Obama about encryption, and he kept saying he didn't change his mind. I'm like, well, here you are in 2000, whatever, saying this. Now you're saying this. So tell me what happened. Like, I'm sorry, that's not the case. And I think a lot of people, you don't want to spend your time fact checking people either. Mm. I mean, except for Donald Trump, which is just impossible not to. And that's a useless interview because all it is is countering lying, persistent and pernicious But you'd lying. love to talk to him. I would. I would. I, it would be a real, it's sort of like the ultimate wordle, I guess. The ultimate, <laughs> I don't know what, like, how can I, what a puzzle, how to get this guy to tell the truth. And there's an expression, hello, he lied. That's how he lives in, in this state of persistent mendaciousness. But I think head on, smart people appreciate it. They they see it coming, right? I'm like, I'm going to ask you about privacy and your role in it, and I'm going to tell you I think you're responsible. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.
If you know, if, uh, you know, what the CEO should be doing, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and you, you know, you're very vocal in talking about them. I sometimes am. advise some of the CEOs. I wouldn't say advise. I, I actually say it publicly. Yeah. yeah, I say, I'm going to say this publicly, so I'm going to tell you right off the bat. Why and I always write them? it. Why didn't you uh, read yeah. and cash in rather than, than stand on the sidelines? I guess I don't like money enough. I, I was offered jobs at every single one of those companies, every one of them, at early stages. I just didn't want to talk to them. <laughs> I didn't want to take orders from them. I don't know. I don't think I knew better, I, but I, I knew I was as smart as some of them, right? Not the CEOs necessarily. I mean, Jeff Bezos is clearly a really strategic thinker. I just I didn't want to work for them. I don't know. I don't like money enough. I knew the money was there. I just I wasn't as interested in the money as I was in what I was doing. And so I guess, you know, and I was doing fine. Mm. I, did, I don't need billions of dollars. It's <laughs> quite I a guess. thing to say. <laughs> well, I don't know what would I do. It's such a I, when you start to watch a lot of the corrosive effects of it on the, their children and also their lives. They one of the things I I did the podcast for Succession, um, yes. which I loved, which I love that show. And one of the things that you notice is the interiors get tighter and tighter and more comfortable and more comf- more cashmere and more cashmere. And they have to go from their planes to their cars to their expensive apartments. And in the very last uh, scene of each of the characters, they're ensconced in their little worlds, right? They're stuck or they're solo. And the only person who is in a bar with people is uh, the brother, who uh, one of the brothers. And he got out, right? And so whenever I would, as, I, as they became richer, they would inquire chiefs of staff and more houses and more layers. And I felt like it was a prison. I was like, it's a cashmere prison, but it's a prison. And so... That idea of the enormous weight of wealth was off-putting to me. I know it, there's a certain point where you get enough money and you're fine. Mm. And, and, but it was – they all had chiefs of staff. That was always like I, – I find it slightly depressing. I don't know. I just do. You were talking about accountability earlier. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me in, in the last bit of time that we have, talk about that. One of the things – and and this came up um, in your mm-hmm. podcast Pivot with uh, Scott Galloway, who's no relation to me, but uh, a great host nonetheless. He um, is. One of the things that you were talking about was Mark Zuckerberg standing in front of those families who their family members uh, have died and they blame Facebook and Instagram and, and Meta for, for uh, being complicit in some ways in their deaths. And mm-hmm. Scott said that nothing will change before somebody goes to jail. For, yeah, for what has happened. Saying, yeah. it, do you agree with that? Do you think that, I mean, it, there's a lot of talk about regulation and what is and is not there. Do you think somebody involved in tech needs to go to jail so that those companies will be held accountable? Well, Americans never go to jail. American business people, like for the banking crisis, nobody went to jail. Cigarette, I don't think anyone went to jail. Who went to jail? The Theranos lady, Elizabeth Holmes. I, I think there needs to be regulation first and lawsuits. I think that the ability to sue them and liability is critically important. I think any regulation would be nice. And I know everyone argues with me, there is regulation. I'm like, no, not specifically. There's a lot of specific financial regulation, a lot of specific regulation with pharmaceuticals and planes. Like that that door blew off that Alaska plane and they grounded 750 planes and, and investigations all over the place. And slowly social media is corroding our, the fabric of our society and and they have these idiot hearings on Capitol Hill. And where where does that leave us then? I mean, you end the book with this kind of rallying cry for us to <laughs> take do. back control. So what yeah. does take back control mean? 
Well, right now we have an opportunity with uh, uh, artificial general intelligence. So, like, there can be rules around it. Where is our government, our elected officials? Look, I understand. I'm sure coming from Canada, looking at our government, we look like a ridiculous clown car. And we are. That is no question. But the elected officials are elected, right? I like that word a lot. And as as flawed as they might be, that's their responsibility to put in place protections, privacy protections, data protections. In this case, what what are our guidelines around artificial general intelligence, who should control it? Should it still be the same giant companies, which are nation states, making decisions for the rest of society? They are unelected, unaccountable, and un... You can't get rid of them. They they just own the power, and they have all the money. And so we did it before when it was, you know, when it was breaking up Baby Bell or the oil. We've done it. We've done it before. So why cannot we do it again? If we don't do it again, do you worry about... I mean, you yes. have kids, and you talk about your kids a lot. Um, mm-hmm. on the podcast and what have you. Do you worry about, about the world that they will inherit? Yeah. There's a movie, Total Recall. Did you ever see it? Mm-hmm. It was on Arnold Schwarzenegger and the guy who got to control Mars, right? Speaking of Elon Musk. Like, he controlled the air on Mars. What? Huh? Like, really? Because he couldn't, the private company controlled the planet. I could see that happening easily, easily. And they actually can be very efficient. And I think one of the problems is, as they've helped... D- decline people's regard for government, they have taken more control. And at least with government, you have a democracy. You have some recourse, right? You can throw the bum out. We can't throw these people out. We cannot, no matter what we do. And so we've got to really charge and push our elected officials to pass these privacy laws, to resist the the uh, siren call of money and politics. Very difficult. I get it. I get it. But we need to have national privacy bills. We need to call them to account for their copyright violations. We have to have stringent antitrust laws mm. that, that reflect the new day. We have antitrust laws from 100 years ago, you know? And so, and we have to have clarity in algor- algorithms. What are they doing? It's your data they're using. It's your data. And and someone's like, what message would you send? And I didn't put this in the book, but I'm like, Soylent Green is people, right? <laughs> and it's from a, the Charlton Heston movie, Soylent Green, but it's us. That's us. And yet in the, the face of that, this is the last question. I mean, this, the, the subtitle of this book is, is a tech love story. You say, yeah. I believe in tech. You still believe I in do. it? I do. A hundred percent. Because look, cancer, climate change, tech will help us solve these, not completely, obviously, but there's so many really fascinating challenges. We could, like AGI and cancer research and gene folding and improving healthcare outcomes, better education. There's everything that has become a weapon can become a tool. It's the same thing, like fire, right? Fire can either burn down your house or warm you, right? And I think we have to start focusing in them as tools and not weapons. And the only way they become weapons is if the broader group of democratic-leaning countries do not take control of it for a group and for the benefit of more people. I personally like Mark Zuckerberg. I really do. I, I, people get mad at me for saying, but I do. He's a nice. He's nice. He's a nice. Nice is kind of a. He's look. He's an. He's a human being. But one of the things that used to drive me crazy was when we'd have discussions when we were talking where he'd say, all of us together, and as the community, he loved the word community, have to get together. I was like, okay, but why do you control the whole community? Mm. You can't be fired. So don't give me community talk if you don't give us all the power because we don't have the power you do. So until you can give up your power, which you won't, 
I don't want to hear the word community out of your mouth. It's a, it's a kingdom is what it is. And at least we should just say it. Let's explain what it is. And that's what it is, a money kingdom. I, I think the biggest thing that's sort of laughable is VCs giving foreign policy advice, mm. honestly. Or, you know, just the other day, Elon was talking about the size of babies' heads and intelligence giving advice on this uh, through cesareans. <laughs> it's like, and I, I had a cesarean. I'd like him to sit down. Right? It's like, sit down, sir. I, I don't know why we're taking our advice and our philanthropy and everything else from people who are good at coding. Okay. I don't really want you to socially engineer the world. I'm a sucker for elections and democracy, I guess. I don't know. Kara Swisher, it's a great pleasure to talk to you again. This is uh, a fascinating you. book. Thank you I very much. I can't wait to come to Canada. I'm going to be a Canadian journalist, you're, apparently. You're welcome here anytime. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Kara Swisher's new memoir is called Burn Book, A Tech Love Story. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.